So we're there. I've been there for five days at this point. Nobody sees me because I'm at the church in the kitchen working. And the day before the wedding, my aunt came in and was like, I just want to say I'm sorry. And I was like, what? That lovely voice was Ashley Stamper, an extraordinary person, mom, and local cake artist. She's a friend, and I have to interrupt her, at least for now. Let me explain what's going on, who I am, and why apologies were being dropped in a church kitchen. My name is Christina White, and I'm a senior at West Virginia University. I study biology and international studies, and I'm an intern with the Geography Engagement Program. For my internship during the spring of 2021, I wanted to do something I'm passionate about. That includes cooking, local foods, farmers markets, sweets, talking to people, and I found nothing better than the cottage food industry in West Virginia, which I'll explain in just a minute. There's so much to talk about in terms of homemade food in Appalachia, and this is just a small portion of the wonderful things that are happening right beneath our noses. In West Virginia, I found a glorious opportunity for home cooks to legally sell and market their goods. My state is famous for things like pepperoni rolls, apple butter, and moonshine, but I have a few questions. What else is being made that I don't know about? Who is producing them? And what does their day-to-day life look like? I keep thinking about that cottage metaphor, someone with free time making food and selling it at the market. Well, that's not really the reality. And how can the average person find out the truth? Whether you're a college student like me or busy parents, how can we do our part to support these local producers, keep money in the state, and respect them for the artists they are? Naturally, I spent the past few months scouring the internet for these local producers, called cottage producers, meeting up with them at Panera, or having interviews over Zoom, to find out what their life is really like, what they make, and what this home industry means for the future of West Virginia. I was flabbergasted by the diversity of people I talked to, from a husband and wife chocolate making team from Point Pleasant, to a woman from the Republic of Congo who's sharing African food throughout Wheeling. Let's get started on a delicious journey of opportunity and resilience in West Virginia. Remember, this ain't no bake sale. Before we can meet cottage producers and talk about laws in West Virginia, I have to define cottage food for you. Honestly, I didn't know what it meant when I started this journey. So it's not a cake made in a beautiful cottage in the countryside, but a category of foods that are allowed to be made from a home without a permit from the West Virginia Department of Agriculture or an inspection from the health department. They can be sold at farmer's markets, from your home, in the mail, or in a store. Another key point is they are non-potentially hazardous, meaning they do not require refrigeration, they're pretty shelf-stable, and they're not acidified. 
There's a lot of foods that fit in this category, but the most popular examples I've come across are cakes, candy, confection, different types of jam and jelly, syrup, canned tomatoes, popcorn, tea leaves, fruit pies, biscuits, molasses, and the list goes on and on, but it's making my mouth water. The idea is that these foods cannot get you sick, so they're safe to sell from a home kitchen. Early in my quest on investigating cottage food, I had the privilege of talking to John Slummer, who was a farmer, environmental engineer, and food producer for years. In fact, his pie recipe got so much attention that Martha Stewart's agent asked for his recipe. He helped me understand what cottage foods are in the global scene. The laws vary from state to state. Some allow sales over the internet, some don't. But pretty much the basis of it is a food that is made at a home, in a home kitchen, and then delivered or sold directly to a local consumer. During our conversation, I was prepared to talk about West Virginia, maybe Appalachia, but John worked abroad for a number of years as an environmental engineer and offers an interesting international perspective on cottage food, its history, and how we could be working towards a European standard eventually ended up in Europe for 10 years doing environmental engineering and uh, environmental affairs over there, helping to clean up things. And that's where I really first started encountering the, the modern form of uh, pick your own and, and cottage foods. It's very endemic over there. In other words, because of the world wars and the impact that shipping embargoes and submarines, you know, the U-boats had on, on food, each of the countries in Europe had to learn how to develop local food. In Britain, it's pretty much uh, a mandate for many years to grow your own food. So they developed local community garden plots called allotments. And uh, you'll find in those countries, it's, it's embraced in a greater level than here, both growing your own, getting it locally, going to pick your own, the, the connection between the individual and a source of locally grown food is, is much uh, greater than it is here. And the cottage industry is, is, I think, in some ways more advanced there. It's more, more accepted. Hearing about the local tradition of cottage food across the pond made me hopeful for West Virginia. There may not be a world war going on right now, but current struggles, like the COVID-19 pandemic, could be pushing us towards a more resilient form of local food. We're getting back to the smaller producer and the local thing rather than the corporate multinational just stamping out the same thing everywhere. Unlike Europe, where the cottage food industry is clearly spelled out and promoted by the government, West Virginia has still been a player in the cottage food game, even if you might not realize that you've participated in the buying or selling of a cottage good. Casey Ganser, our representative from the Department of Agriculture and cottage food expert, has a story that you might relate to. I know I do. And this lady made me these beautiful cakes. I remember back in the day, my mom would say, don't ever tell anybody where we get that cake. And I would always think, why? We went to go pick it up at her house. She made them in her home. And I think back, I'm 40 years old now, 30 years ago, this poor woman could never advertise her business. She never, she was an artist. I mean, she made the most amazing cakes I had ever seen. And now all these years later, that's legal. She could have had, I can't even imagine the business she could have had, had this law been in place then. 
Now that we have a solid background in what cottage food is, let's enter part one. Who are cottage food producers? This is the part where I stop talking about them and we start hearing from real cottage food producers. Honestly, they're hilarious, hardworking, funny, diverse, and just awesome people to talk to. First, let's clarify a point. Cottage baker is a term you'll hear quite a bit. Now, some people do bake and that qualifies as cottage food. Others do tomatoes or farmer's market type things that are still cottage foods. But remember, a cottage baker is a producer, but a producer doesn't have to be a baker. People don't know what that term means. Yeah, exactly. And like you say, they hear cottage bakery and they're thinking cottage, you know? Yeah. And yeah. It, what's kind of funny is, is, is we're in the cottage bakery industry and we don't bake. <laughs> we do yeah. chocolate, and we you know? we that all the time. Yeah. We just heard from Charles and Vicki, a husband and wife team that owns Hannah Bugs Chocolate Company based in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. They started their chocolate company to finance their daughter's dance education in Australia. Now that's a pretty unique situation, but they share some common traits with the other cottage producers I talk to. Cottage producers are often busy with a full-time job, second job, children, families, and other commitments. They are hardworking and free time is not something they see often. I work as a pharmacist. I'm still full-time even now. I work um, three 12-hour shifts a week. If I'm not working at work, I'm working on chocolate, and yeah. it's usually all day. So. Usually it's about 13 hours a day. We've got a daughter in college now, so the next year she wanted to go to Australia, which was twice, twice the money. So that's really when we tried to start getting more focused on we're wanting this to help offset those college expenses. You know, you might have somebody that's got medical expenses they're trying to get paid, you know, whatever. I mean, there's a reason why they're working a job plus doing this too, I mean. Because a lot of people just think that we're going up for the play money, you know, or travel money. No, no. it's not that <laughs> at all. We actually don't personally keep a single dollar. Yeah, we don't. If you're not in the cottage food industry or have talked to producers like Charles and Vicki, how are you supposed to know how professional and time consuming this is? I wanted to show you who cottage producers are where they come from, and what their daily life looks like. Let's hear from Brianna Blend, a school teacher and owner of the Blended Homestead with her husband, Eric. I'm a school teacher also, so once school is still in session, and then come August and September, I slow down my baking quite a bit because I have other things that we're doing. But farming is a side gig for us. We both have full-time jobs on top of this. Talking to Brianna was super cool because I learned what a homestead is. It's essentially a smaller farm and they rotate what they sell based on what they have and what they want to grow. They do tomatoes, eggs, chickens, and cottage goods too, like zucchini bread and cookies, which sell out every time she sets up at the farmer's market. This is another example of how a cottage producer doesn't fit the typical mold of somebody baking cakes in their house. Here's another producer I talked to, Ashley Stamper, who started off this podcast and specializes in baking. And I made a cake, and it was so much better than I expected. So I started making cakes for my kids and family, and then after about a year, a stranger started calling my cell phone, asking uh -huh. if I would make cakes for them. And I did that for about another year, so two years total. 
And then I decided that I was going to go all in and, and see what I could build with it. So seven years later, here I am. On the day Ashley quit her job and came home to pursue her passion of baking, this is what she said to her husband, which I found hilarious and so supportive. When my husband came home, I was like, I quit my job, just going to make cakes. And I was so ready for the, what are you doing? You can't quit your job. You know, that's, this is insanity. And he was like, oh, okay, cool. And thanks to new legislation in West Virginia, it is possible to quit your job and make a realistic living making cottage food from your home. Also, the beauty of cottage food is that it does what you want it to. It's flexible. You can choose your hours. You could keep a full-time job or dedicate yourself like Ashley does to her baking business. Every cottage producer comes to the table with a different story, a different job, a different family structure, but also a different culture. I was honored and intrigued to meet Erica from the Republic of Congo, who is dedicated to sharing authentic African food from a variety of countries with the people of Wheeling. Hey, I'm Erica, and I'm from the Republic of Congo, and I live in Wheeling, West Virginia, and I cook African food. I love reading. I love cooking. I, I don't only have like one thing from Congo because you know, like African have like 54 countries. So I really wanted to bring food from different sides. Like I cook while he's in Congo. My fiance is from Senegal, you know? So I mixed that. And I also have my cousin that from Cameroon. So I also mixed that. And that's the beauty about what I do because food is really my passion. And I don't only focus, you know, in one country. Erica works two other jobs to fund her home cooking business, including a Grubhub driver and at the YMCA. Now, I have to clarify that home catering does not qualify as cottage food because it's potentially hazardous, but she does plan on starting a cottage business featuring her homemade African donuts called Puff Puffs that you can fill with mint, orange, chocolate. I know that I want one and I want one now. I wanted to know what keeps Erica going despite the setbacks. And she said, because it's my passion, you know, like when I was growing up, cooking was the way that I used to bond with my mom. So we would be together in the kitchen and we just share so much. And she's back home, you know, and I haven't seen her in a moment. So every time that I cook is just my, my getaway, you know, and I feel like she's just with me. Now that we've met some cottage producers and realized that they're as unique as you and I, the people of this state, we can move on to part two, the cottage food law, which I've alluded to throughout the podcast. Basically, the cottage food law was passed in 2019, supported by the Institute for Justice, a nonprofit, which really changed the game of cottage food in West Virginia. It took down restrictions, made it a lot easier to sell, for example, before the law was passed, you could only sell at farmer's markets. Now, you can sell in stores, from your house, and even in the mail. 
This is a big deal because West Virginia is leading the nation. We've been cited in Forbes magazine and numerous other outlets as being one of the most progressive in the nation. We're ahead of other states in terms of making it easy for local people to sell their homemade goods, and other states don't have laws to regulate this. In New Jersey, there's still no law, and in Tennessee, there's caps on how many units of cupcakes or jam you can sell. If you look at the nation as a whole, we are extremely lucky in West Virginia. There are a lot of states who have income caps. So basically, you've hit a $20,000 threshold. You can't be at cottage food anymore. You know, there are states that have a lot stricter rules who may require that home kitchen inspection even for a non-potentially hazardous. That was Casey Ganser from the Department of Agriculture. She's been a longtime supporter of the cottage food law and is looking to expand opportunities for cottage producers. She mentioned that there are no formal inspections by the health department in the kitchen of a cottage producer as long as they follow the guidelines for making non-potentially hazardous foods. They also have to include a label stating very clearly that this was made in a home kitchen. Here's what actual producers had to say about the cottage food law and how it's affected them. I've read West Virginia has some of the best cottage food laws out there. So I feel like I'm really lucky to, to live in a state that wants individuals to succeed. Which is really nice for West Virginia. It seems like we're always kind of behind, but on that, it seemed like we were doing pretty good. Things are looking better now, but I wanted to know what life was like for a cottage producer before the law was passed in 2019, and what was the rationale for forming this new law? Ten years ago, we had way, way less farmer's markets than we do today, like dramatically less farmer's markets. So their outlets were really limited, or they were pushed, literally pushed underground. You know, they couldn't advertise or anything like that. In West Virginia, people have think cottage food means farmer's markets because that's the way it always was. So it's kind of hard to get people out of that mindset. So when that bill was introduced, the key feature to it was these non-potentially hazardous foods that we sell at farmer's markets, if they're not hazardous and they're not dangerous for us to eat, and if they're following the same label requirements, why are we bounding these people to farmer's markets? And that was the original intention. And that passed. And when it passed, it included a line that said, can sell directly to consumer or through a third-party carrier. So that opened up being able to sell to mom-and-pop shops or mail within the state or go to a church you know, craft fair and actually be able to legally sell cookies. I mean, I used to think back, now that I know the rules, how many of these people who were selling at these small once-a-year craft shows, like, well, I think about it, oh, that was a whole lot of illegal cookies for no reason. It didn't need to be, because no one was saying they weren't safe. They weren't safer at farmer's markets than they are at the church picnic. So I think it just brought a lot of common sense. Who would have thought it's illegal to run to your neighbor's house and buy some cookies or a cake for a birthday party? I never would have imagined that. In addition to making sure that more cookies are legal, the cottage food law is a platform for growth. You start with a cottage food business and you expand to maybe a real storefront. Now that's not the goal for everyone and we have to respect those that want to stay at a smaller level, but John Slummer had an interesting comment about the big names we know and love. Everybody you know that 
that does this on a, a larger scale started out with a hobby and a passion, whether it's some guy with a chili sauce or a salsa that you know his friends tell him is the best, or whether it's a baker with a cookie. I mean, look at Mrs. Fields and Famous Amos. They started out essentially as cottage bakers. They, they were people who made this in their homes and their friends told them it was great. And whether it's a hobby or a supplemental income or turns into the next big uh, corporation, it, you know, it's still a great experience and it teaches your children a lot too to go through that experience. I think entrepreneurship is going to be a lot more of the future of employment for people than it, it has ever been in the past. John's exactly right. Especially in times of struggle, like the global pandemic, innovation has been the key to success in moving ahead. And hopefully West Virginia can take advantage of the wealth of culinary knowledge that exists. Plus, it's bringing us closer to real food and advantageous ways of doing things. The benefits of the cottage industry are almost uncountable, but let's start off with benefits for the producer themselves. This is part three, how cottage food helps those who make it. In this segment, we'll tackle the benefits of cottage food for the producer and the customer. The idea that you can start a business with very minimal startup costs is huge because you're taking a, a, a lot of the risk out of the equation. Casey helped me understand that you don't need thousands of dollars or a new space to start this business. All you really need is a $35 permit that you can apply for by mail and labels, even handmade stick-on labels, anything. If I worked out of the house, then I'm paying a babysitter on top of not really making a ton of money to begin with. And doing this, I can, I'm at home, you know, for, for my children, but I'm also bringing income in to our family. That time flexibility is huge for many of the producers I talk to who are parents. In addition to saving money on a sitter, you can stay home with your kids and maybe teach them a thing or two in the kitchen. As a person who has two young children who works full time and is doing some growing, I know time is everything and most businesses aren't open between midnight and 3 a.m. But a cottage food business can be and that might be your most productive time. As a college student with a double major, I thought I knew what an all-nighter meant, but Amy seems to have me beat. But I didn't start working on my cakes until my kid was in bed asleep. So it's two o'clock in the morning and everybody's asleep and you're working on your cake. And then you have to get up and go to work that, you know, yeah. that morning. There's another reason why time flexibility is essential for some cottage producers, health conditions, and medical emergencies. Cassandra from Bridgeport has a personal story that illustrates this point. I'm Cassandra Hamilton, and my business is Cassandra's Cookie Creations. My husband is on the train for kidney and a pancreas, and, you know, I need that flexibility. Not only that flexibility, but I need the 
you know, to be able to do something from home and take care of my children and, you know, do all of the things that you're supposed to do in order to, you know, keep my house running, you know, at some point he's not going to have an income and, and I thank God every day that, you know, I'm, I'll be able to do that, you know, but it's just honestly supporting community. It's not just, you know, my bakery, but I put money back into the system, you know, and it's a cycle for sure. As I learned about the benefits of cottage food by asking producers why it works for them, I came face to face with my own incorrect assumptions. I thought that a cottage producer would naturally want to expand to a storefront from their home business. That is not the case. Staying small and producing from your home is a perfectly valid and great option, especially if you want that time at home and flexibility. This is an individual game, and we cannot treat all producers like they're at a lower rung, hoping to advance to the desired goal of having a brick-and-mortar store. A lot of people say, you know, you should open a bakery. Not that that would be a bad thing. I've got a very good thing going here. I'm in my home. I'm not starting every day that I've got to pay rent somewhere, that I've got to afford two electricity bills. I am very content right now taking custom orders. I waste very little product because everything I make is custom. I like what I'm doing with a bakery. That's so much more anxiety, I think, for me in terms of rent and electricity and gas and water and who's going to be home when my kids get from school. I am my own boss and I don't have to worry about anything except for what is on my calendar that day. Cottage producers like Ashley, who we just heard from, are content and proud of the level they're at. But others like Charles and Vicky from Point Pleasant do want to expand, and cottage food is a springboard to get their chocolates in stores across the state and maybe one day country. I'm looking at wanting to get out of my full-time job, mm-hmm. and so that is my goal. Yeah, this is a good way of doing that. You can start out and not have all the expenses, but we do a lot of wholesale. We're eventually wanting to get into distributors. Believe me, I will not be surprised when Hannah Bugs Chocolate is all the rage. Now, they're supporting their daughter with funds, but cottage food in this industry allows parents to support their children in a much more one-on-one and intimate way. Kids can see their parents with a skill, the job they do, and directly participate and learn from them. Personally, I think this is something we're lacking today where parents go to work and a lot of kids have no idea what they do. They are an individual. They accomplish things. They are their own person. That's a really important thing for kids to see that, yes, I am their mother and I am married to their dad, but that I also do this really cool thing that is just me, that I created. And I think that's inspiring for children. My granddaughter, who is eight, she can hold an icing bag and she does pretty good at icing cookies already at eight years old. 
That was Ashley and Sarah, respectively, who proved that time at home means more than physically sitting at home. It's transferring knowledge and skills to your children. Cottage food is challenging gender roles. Cassandra told me about her eight-year-old son, who helps her measure, prep the kitchen, and clean. In addition to learning how to make awesome cookies, it's teaching him that he can do whatever job he likes, regardless of social norms for men and women. Warning, you can hear her little kids running around and playing as she talked to me on her Zoom call. In all of this, it's made him more aware of the kitchen. So he's wanted to use the stove and how do I cook this? Or how do I pull your cookie trays out of the oven when they need to be pulled out? If I have my hands in something else, that's super helpful. Just a genuine interest in not only doing that, but, but honestly, like life skills. Because how many men do you know that grow up and they don't know how to do any of that? That's been really important to me, just teaching him you don't have to work outside the home and you don't have to have a cookie cutter job. Just to recap, time flexibility, staying at home with your kids, and freedom to make and do what you want to do are the reasons why the cottage industry is ideal for the producer. But what about the consumer, me and you? I know I'm not about to start making banana bread out of my home kitchen as much as I'd love to. There's a trend today where everybody's into knowing what's in your food. Local, organic, natural are some words that are tossed around quite often. But it means so much more to talk to somebody and hear exactly what's in it. I just started making my own hummus and cashew cream cheese from scratch and it blew my mind. Cottage producers have been doing this for a while. If you go to a grocery store baker, you're getting pre-processed, for the most part, they're pre-baked cakes. I, I guarantee you, anyone in the bakery cannot list everything that was put into that cake. When you order from me, I make everything from scratch. I make cake, filling, buttercream. I make my own fondant. I mean, I know exactly to the grain of salt, what goes into my food. Ashley even gets her eggs from a local chicken coop, and she was not the only one who could tell me each and every ingredient in her products. Cottage producers want their food to be quality. John was talking to me about how he only picks the highest quality ingredients to go into a product that represents him. Something I've made and I'm selling directly with my name on it to be head and shoulders above anything that they can get commercially. And that means the flavor, the quality, the fact that there's no additives or chemicals in there. And part of that means I want to get the freshest ingredients and freshest produce. Fresh in this context is not a marketing gimmick. It literally means these ingredients are free from unnatural derivatives that we can't pronounce, like sorbates, industrial preservatives, yucky things like that. You can't, in a home kitchen, use ingredients and do things that the commercial producers grow. You're not a Pillsbury or a Nabisco, so you don't have access to the chemical sorbates and preservatives, nor would you want to. So anyone that's producing this at home is going to use a fairly simple, safe recipe like Grandma did. So they're not pumping chemicals and preservatives into your food, and there's thought about each step and each ingredient that you're eating. 
It's a kinder way of making food for the environment and our bodies. My chickens are free range. They're not in cages. They live off bugs and corn and whatever else. That's a nice thing, knowing that everything that you are feeding to your children is something that was sourced in a natural and sustainable way. I can't leave out John's perspective, that of an environmental engineer. He reminded me that the environmental impact is lower because there's no overseas shipping costs or associated fuel in pollution. It's a better environmental impact since it's not being shipped around the world, it's produced locally. The next benefit of cottage food for the consumer touches me personally. The last time I had dairy was a McDonald's McFlurry, and I think I vomited all night. So no lactose or dairy for me. Cottage producers are ready to tackle that challenge and more. They do gluten-free for people that might have celiac disease or another sensitivity. They want to accommodate your allergy and they will pay attention to it because it's their business and they care about your health, safety, and enjoyment of the product. Keep in mind that every cottage producer doesn't do customizations, especially ones that are super busy and have a hundred blueberry-only muffins to make in one day. But the ones that are willing to accommodate are usually more than happy to do so. I always do my best to accommodate people because little kids with peanut allergies or dairy allergies, they deserve an awesome cake and you can't always get that from a grocery store. So I think it's important to connect with customers, clients, because they do feel like you care. People think that having a home kitchen would make it harder to accommodate allergies and dietary preferences, but in fact, it's easier because the space is yours. It's easier to control your kitchen, as Cassandra tells us. I have the, the opportunity and the space to wipe everything down. All of my stuff is put away every time I use it. It's all literally sealed. Cross-contamination, if I'm just starting gluten-free cookies, is a lot easier for me to do in a small space. I do some nut-free stuff for some customers, so I can definitely do that as well. Besides allergies, the attention to your tastes and preferences is exceptional. Cottage producers actually want to get to know you, the purpose for your order, maybe the details of your event, in order to craft the perfect product. With weddings, we'll just go grab lunch and I call it a consult. I ask them how they met, what they enjoy, things that they do together. You know, all those questions that you would know about a friend. You know, how'd you meet? What do you do for fun? If you're active on Pinterest or Instagram, you'll know that personalized gifts are what's in. What's popular is realtor gifts. Realtors are using cookie, personalizing the cookies and making them their closing gifts. So you'll have like a key and a doormat and a door and the door will have the number their new house that they bought. All I can say is there better be locally made cookies next time I buy a house, which won't be for a very long time because I'm a college student. Anyway, another benefit of cottage food for you and me is to experience someone's culture. Even if the producer isn't from a distant land or overseas, you're getting a taste of their culinary training, their flair, their take on food. 
But for Erica, it does happen to be exposing people to African cuisine and an entirely new culture for some. So I want people to be able to try the food, to experience the culture, and what's the best way to experience a culture other than food, you know? I have had people asking me, like, oh, then why are you from in Africa? Oh, Africa is not a, a country, then it's a continent. While it's refreshing to try something new, it's always nice to sit back and take delight in the familiar, the old. Cottage food allows you to make a relationship with the person who produces that birthday cake or anniversary cookies for you. There's a true relationship formed and continuity that's really special. I try to be as personal as possible. Like when you're talking to me, I'm just going to talk to you like you're a friend of mine. I'm going to keep you updated on how your food is going and when when you can get it. I've done baby shower cakes and kids who are now five and six that I've done their birthday cakes since before they were born. And it's really neat to watch your customers' children grow up. <laughs> That's adorable. That's almost like what I hear from pediatricians. It's the same watch yeah. them grow up. Yes. And my interviews revealed that these relationships are the backbone of feedback in a true supportive community. It's always encouragement or maybe next time you could try this and it would help with whatever the issue is. It really is an amazing experience to see so many people kind of come together and be like, hey, you're my people. You know, I don't know you. <laughs> but I, got, I have your back if you need it. Ashley knows what it feels like to be a beginner. She told me about the people who helped her and inspired her, gave her tips when she needs it, and she's proud to give that to other people. The support network she refers to is consumers, other producers, but also online. She told me about Facebook baking groups that are national or statewide. In these online groups, support is offered and insights are given from a distance. But this kind of communication is snowballing into something bigger, collaboration. New economic opportunities are on the horizon in West Virginia, and Cottage Food is a great gateway to all of this. There's a lot of room for teaming up. Because I'll tell you what, most farmers do not also have time to make the value-added product. But if there was a way to team those people up, which is really the idea with these community kitchen projects. Is it like, not everyone's going to be the person canning it or baking it, but lots of people can be involved in that final product. These collaborative projects could be the subject of a whole new podcast, so I've got to move on to part four, the pandemic. How have these benefits that we've described, like time flexibility, being at home, and being your own boss, contribute to the success and adaptability of cottage producers during the pandemic. Although the prices of basic goods like toilet paper and flour skyrocketed in the beginning of the pandemic, cottage food actually grew. The economic data shows that staying small could be linked to being stronger and more resilient. When everything shut down, that really brought people's attention to your small businesses. And it's helped shine a spotlight on small businesses like us. We have just seen incredible growth this last year. Most people just decided to kind of downgrade and just do smaller 
it wasn't the end of the world for me. It was, I definitely struggled more in terms of finances last year, but already coming into 2021, things have kind of picked back up and they seem to be going smoothly. One of the bonuses of being just little old me is that things can change in a snap. And I've adapted to just kind of roll with how things go. And I don't have to answer to a boss or lay off employees or, or any of that because I do this by myself. It's a little easier. I, I can't imagine being a storefront, honestly, during last year. I think that would have been devastating. Many of us, like myself, are just now being introduced to the benefits of working from home. But Cottage Food takes this business model to a different, more adaptable level. There's clearly some merit to staying small and being able to avoid all of those overhead costs that a traditional storefront would face. Contributing to the success of cottage producers during the pandemic are the specific adaptations producers made to accommodate people's fears of the new disease. They've been incredibly innovative, doing fun things like drive-up cookies, DIY kits, and extra sanitation. I haven't been bothered too much with it. I think it's because of the fact the way I do individually wrap, so people are doing drive-by birthday parties and they're handing my cookies. Drive-by baby showers, when people go by, then they give them a cookie and it's individually wrapped, so it's sealed, it's heat sealed. That was Sarah Humphreys describing the care she takes to make sure that every cookie is safe for the consumer. Not to diss every chain restaurant because there are good employees out there, but just do a quick YouTube search and you'll see the horrors of hygiene or lack thereof at certain large restaurants. Here's another cool way that Cassandra in Bridgeport is making sure everybody stays socially distant when they pick up a product. At first, it was contactless pickup. So if I was somebody who was super concerned, I totally get that. My husband needs a transplant, so I, I totally get that. They've got a dynamic business model that not only survived, but thrived during the COVID-19 pandemic, which I'm not sure why we're not talking more about or trying to apply to other areas, and extra safe hygiene measures. But cottage producers aren't done. The ones I talked to had super fun ideas about making life at home more interesting, getting creative, embracing DIY. I do a lot of the paint your own kids cookies where literally it's an outline and the kid can just paint it and then let it dry and they can eat it. I'll have 20 kids at my house and they'll want to decorate their own cookies. That was what I really geared it towards. When the hot cocoa bombs came out, they were like, you know, just the everything. So I did them with special marshmallows in them for the kids and special colors and unicorn horns and stuff like that. By no means are these paint your own cookies just for kids because I would do this all day. But cottage producers who are not bakers are thinking of ways to get people engaged at home with a wholesome, locally grown product. Canned tomatoes, cottage food, no permits, no nothing. Basil, you can dry it, you can serve it whole. An onion, a pepper, put those in a bag together, a little bit of recipe, you have spaghetti sauce. And some customers like it way better because they did to do a little bit of the process. They think they're making their own spaghetti sauce, but you've already done all the canning and the hard work. It's a so DIY. 
Yeah, it's DIY spaghetti sauce that's totally legal to make from your home. Anyone who wants ideas like that, contact me at the Department of Ag. I think I have an idea like that for every food category. In the middle of a global pandemic, cottage producers are combating boredom, one DIY recipe at a time. I want to highlight the characteristic of these local self-sustaining networks that enabled cottage food to persist and grow during an otherwise difficult time. I had a great Zoom call with Eric Blend from the Northern Panhandle, who summarized this well. That this is really going to make people think, well, you know, maybe maybe we should really start trying to localize these things and think of not just our farmer, but our baker and then our, our restaurant so that when something does happen on the other side of the world, it, it's not going to affect us as much, hopefully. This brings me to part five, the critiques and needs of cottage producers. We can't talk about all the benefits without spinning around for a second and mentioning the needs, the room to grow given the new law and opportunities available in the state. I'd like to begin with making it easier to locate a cottage producer in your region. I wouldn't say there's any kind of database without that. We do have a lot of like regional groups popping up, like I have a little farmer network and I think you're going to find them on social media. Honestly, still farmers markets are probably the most accessible point to finding them. In a world where your Amazon order could be delivered in two days or perhaps by drone to your front doorstep, we have to make sure that cottage food doesn't lag behind. Some of my thoughts are a database, a search engine where you can find cottage producers based on what kind of good you're looking for in your county or city, or a hashtag. So something I'd like to do is start using hashtag cottage food anytime I buy something and upload a delicious looking picture onto my social media. Another frustrating limitation is the refrigeration rule. Remember, to be a cottage food, you have to be non-potentially hazardous, meaning you're shelf-stable and do not need to be put in the refrigerator. This gets kind of murky when you're talking about cakes, which would do better being cold anyway, and they're going to be eaten the same day. This is restricting a lot of producers that get tons of orders for chocolate-covered strawberries, fruit tarts, or cheesecakes, and it's pushing people to sell things illegally, whether they're aware of the rule or not, because of this restriction. We get asked all the time yeah, to do the um, cheesecake strawberries. strawberries. Yeah, you know, we try our best to follow all the laws, you know, so we have to tell them no. But then, you know, they turn to somebody else they know that is doing it, and we know they're not doing it right, and we know they're not doing it legally, which kind of makes us look bad. But I, I told her, I was like, we've built this up. I don't want to do anything to get us in trouble. Right. And so, you know, it just takes one bad review. You know? My thought is that the cottage food law should be working for producers instead of against them. Like Charles and Vicky said, they've had to turn people away knowing that someone else might make the chocolate-covered strawberries illegally. And producers are already taking precautions to make sure that their product stays in prime condition during transport, even if it is not potentially hazardous. You still want the cake to stay cold and intact until it gets there. 
if you're being very clear with clients that it should stay cold, but once you sit it out, say at a wedding or a birthday, I think that people in general should be aware enough to understand that cream cheese icing should be cold. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but at the same time, that kind of limits, especially for for cakes and that sort of thing, the ability that people have to make their own choices in, in what they want. From my understanding, the cottage food law was crafted with the hopes of allowing farmers who sold goods at farmers markets to sell those in other places from their home or online. And I acknowledge that most of my interviews were with those who consider themselves cottage bakers, producing cakes, cookies, and chocolates from their home. But I also interviewed people who had a farming background. And what I realized is that there's a lack of attention to the needs of those with a primarily baking background. And we have to think about how the structure of the law is disproportionately impacting those who want to sell their cheesecake or chocolate-covered strawberries from their home. I actually was looking into a shelf-stable cream cheese icing. Doesn't taste as good. Oh. <laughs> so... You take pride in what you do. If it doesn't taste good, you certainly don't want to sell it just because it's shelf-stable. As potential customers, we certainly don't want subpar cream cheese, and neither do the producers. I'm confident that we can be advocates for cottage producers and that our government can amend the law to support them instead of pressuring them. There are remedies that are simple, like having a label that says, this could go bad, eat it soon including cold packs on certain products, or one day expanding the list of approved cottage food to encompass the most demanded products like cheesecake or chocolate-covered strawberries. As Casey Ganser from the Department of Agriculture said, we need common sense laws, and it wouldn't hurt to make sure there's less illegal confections in West Virginia today. Next on the to-do list is ensuring access to a nearby and affordable commercial kitchen but only when needed. So a commercial kitchen is a kitchen that you can rent out from a restaurant or a facility that follows all of the federal guidelines for an industrial commercial kitchen where you can create a larger variety of goods. They don't have to be non-potentially hazardous and they have things like a stainless steel countertop, extra bathrooms, hand washing sinks, all of those restaurant kitchen features that do not exist in a home cottage kitchen. Very much peace of mind for someone like me that in the event that I need a space, knowing that I could call somewhere or that those resources are available. Ashley is a one-person bakery, and when she's overwhelmed with specialty orders or an order that requires a potentially hazardous ingredient like cheesecake, she could call up a commercial kitchen and rent it out. With the pandemic, there's many restaurants that had to close their doors, and I think a great way to generate income for the restaurant owner and the producer would be allowing their certified commercial kitchen to be utilized by a cottage producer in the evenings or just a few hours a week. We're in such a small community, and there's nothing 
available where we're at to be able to get into a commercial kitchen and the spots that are empty are so expensive we can't afford it. The last need is perhaps the most important. It's less to do with a physical space and more to do with how we talk and our mental state, the discourse society creates about homemade food. It's the fact that cottage food is under the radar and we need to be inclusive and expansive when we talk about it. There's a distinct divide between those with a farming background and those who produce confections and cakes from their home. A lot of the vocabulary in which the law is written and the guidelines are written have more to do with farming than home baking. And I think it's alienating a lot of producers that focus on the cakes and cookies. For example, the West Virginia Vendor's Guide is included in the farmer's market materials. It has a lot of words and jargon that are very agriculture, farming oriented. A few of the baking producers I spoke to were confused about whether that farmer's market vendor's guide applies to them or just the farmers, when in fact it's everyone under the umbrella of cottage food. It details the foods that are acceptable to make or non-potentially hazardous and those that aren't for those that only bake from their home and for those that are doing canned tomatoes or tea leaves at the farmer's market. It's funny, I don't think of baking first when I hear cottage food. But it's so funny when you come from a different world. I come from a farmer world. As dystopian as it sounds, we can unite the two worlds, the baking world and the agriculture world. Anyone that has a homemade recipe and wants to get started should know that their product might fit under the cottage law and how they can begin. Cassandra Hamilton was telling me about other states that has clear and defined laws for cottage food. Whether it's bakers or people who do cakes or people who do jams and jellies, like they kind of have that separated. It's all under a cottage law, but it's separate. So right. it kind of gives people who think they want to start, but they're not sure, some sort of guideline. This clarity on what a cottage food is and who could be a producer extends to consumers and stores that could potentially sell the cottage good. In West Virginia, we do face a lack of internet access, but that doesn't mean that correct and up-to-date information can't be spread. We have certain networking points like community spaces, farmers markets, that would be wonderful sources of information. We have an industry who says, oh, it's legal, I'm legal, I swear that this is totally legal to do, but it takes a long time for that to kind of catch up with all the consumers. I think farmer's markets are a good outlet for spreading that word. I made this podcast to spread the word and to reject some words that may not be true. We have reached my favorite, most juicy section of the podcast, debunking myths. This is part six investigating the stereotypes that are holding cottage food back from a brighter future. Because of the perception of a cottage bakery, people don't know what cottage bakery is. And then when you tell them, well, we don't have a store, it's some people that either turns them off or in their mind it makes you inferior sometimes.
sometimes, you know, we kind of feel that sometimes from people. Although I feel like what I do is superior in a lot of ways. <laughs> Like Charles said, perception is key, sometimes more than policy, the perception or lack of information about a homemade cottage food sitting on the rack compared to an industrial preservative-laden product from a large company. It's hard to go for the cottage food when you don't know what it is or that cottage producers take so much care to provide safety and quality in their product. The first myth I wanted to tackle with cottage producers is that cottage food is unhygienic because it's made in an unregulated home kitchen. Here's what real producers had to say. Someone that owns the business themselves and works it themselves cares a lot more than somebody that's just working to get their paycheck. I mean, I guarantee you our stuff is safer than anybody else's. Bouncing off Amy's point, reputation matters. Here's what a negative review would do to a cottage business. It would shine a negative light on the whole industry. We talk about a lot of that with produce safety, how if you know one person gets sick from a zucchini at a farmer's market, that will have a negative impact statewide. So it's going to be the same thing on a cottage food baker. You know, we have no reported cases of it, and I have been researching cottage food for almost a decade, and I have yet to see any kind of you know, this cake killed somebody because it just doesn't happen. Food safety and hygiene are personal matters to many cottage producers. For some, it would personally devastate them if a customer got sick. If somebody gets sick, like, first of all, it will affect me because I will feel like I let that person down. And then number two, I don't want it to reflect my business as being a place where people can get sick. You know, it's not safe. It would... Personally, it would devastate us because, oh, yeah. you know, we put our heart into this. Yeah. To prevent contamination, especially during times of a pandemic, cottage producers take very strict cleanliness measures and separation with their home kitchen versus production area for the cottage business. We use bleach to sanitize everything. We have different utensils that we use just for the chocolate that we keep separate from our personal stuff. I mean, we have this room in our house when the kids was little, used to be the toy room. Well, it's now been converted to the chocolate room. Yeah, Even Charles and Vicky's kids know not to trespass when chocolate making is in the works. They're wanting to make a bowl of cereal or make a sandwich. I'm like, where am I supposed to make this at? It's like, go in the other room. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sometimes friends and family want to come over and have a leisurely fun day of chocolate making at Charles and Vicky's cottage food business, but they don't understand what they signed up for. I have a good friend and she helps us. Well, last Valentine's, you know, she brought her granddaughter that's eight years old. You know, she's got the long hair and she was wanting to get in there and help and it's like, and I stopped her and I said, before you help, you've got to get your gloves on. She's eight years old, you know, but we had small gloves. You gotta get your hair net. And she's like, but I don't want to wear a hair net. And it's like, okay, go watch TV. But if you're going to be in the kitchen with us helping, you've got to do this. 
There's also a stigma about cottage food producers that don't have an official license to have a food business from home, even though the only thing that's required is the permit from the Department of Agriculture. Many food producers do have a food handler's card or other kind of training, but the lack of an official certificate or license can put consumers down. That and not having a physical storefront to go pick up your food from. Sometimes people will say, oh, do you have your license? And I'm like, well, technically I don't have to have my license. I carry my food handler's card. I mean, I have for 18 years. You know, I worked in a restaurant for 15 years. So that's second nature to me. Unless somebody trusts you or they've had products from me before, people sometimes don't want to do it because they can't go to a storefront or, hey, I'm going to meet at Sheets. I meet at Sheets a lot. And people are like, oh, can I just drop by like your storefront? And I'm no, you can drop by my house. But they just, some people get turned off by that. And that's truly fine if they're not comfortable with that, but it makes it really hard. So how do we as consumers get comfortable with the idea that This cake or this jam was made in a person's home kitchen? I think the answer is experience and exposure to the outstanding quality and relationships that can be built through cottage food. Okay, now let's go to a big ticket item that is really prohibitive, especially for college students or people on a budget when they're looking for artisan bread to buy, and that is price. Here's the next myth I want to debunk, that cottage foods are way too expensive and unjustified in their price. Let's hear why the price might be a little bit higher and what you're getting in return. When you order a cake from me, you're not just ordering ingredients and time. You are paying me to miss a play that my daughter is in. You are paying me to skip motocross with my boys. I'm missing date night with my husband or I'm skipping video chat with my sisters. Ashley makes a decision to prioritize work and she knows that people are paying for a skill and talent they might not have. I want people to look at my work and say, she's an individual, it's a little more expensive, but it's worth it. So I find myself since I've started that I I don't complain about what other small businesses charge for anything Mm -hmm. because I understand that they have a skill that I don't. I wouldn't go to a blacksmith and be like, I want this whatever, and then get mad at him when he tells me what it's going to cost because that's his area of expertise. He knows about metal. I know about cakes. Not that I've ever been to a blacksmith, but I certainly wouldn't look around at all the equipment that I don't know how to use and be upset when it's too expensive because I wouldn't know how to do that. I believe that the commercialization of food and our convenience-oriented desires have distanced us from the true process of making food from start to finish and how tedious and complicated it can be. It's like CSI, you know, they always solve the murder in an hour. You can watch a whole cake get decorated and set up in 15 minutes and you get this idea of what it is, but you're not seeing, I have to go to the store 
I make a list, buy my products. I have to come home. I have to, I wipe down my kitchen and all my utensils. And then every certain things have to be room temperature before you mix them. And there's preparing pans and then baking. And then you have to take it out and it has to cool. And then it has to go in the fridge and then you tort. You have to make icing fondant. That's a two-day process in itself just to get cakes baked and prepared to decorate. All I heard was a two-day process just to get ready for the decoration. That's a world away from the boxed cake mix and ready-to-use icing that a lot of my friends and I think of when we say, let's bake a cake together. Here's another example. Cassandra's cookies have layer upon layer of art in detail, each of which have to dry individually before another is added. It's hard to tell someone, hey, I spent 20 minutes on this one cookie. There's six layers to this, like I had to let dry. It takes 12 hours for these cookies to dry, period. I too struggle to keep in mind that you're paying for the time and special attention that is required to create such a spectacular product. Like Ashley said, I pay for things that I couldn't make or do myself, from getting a haircut to getting special pineapple sorbet. Cassandra's do-it-yourself cookie kit is a similar idea. People are like, oh my gosh, $15 for six cookies? I'm like, Okay, but I'm giving you three bags of icing and the sprinkles and this, that, and the other. So if you went and bought all of that and the meringue powder, which is so expensive, like you could never do it for that price. After speaking with them, I can never watch cooking or baking shows in the same way. I have a new respect for the contestants on The Great British Bake Off, one of my favorite shows. Back to the point, when you're looking at a cottage good, keep in mind that the price is reflecting someone's time away from their loved ones and an amazing skill that took years to refine. On to the next myth I want to tackle. There are sometimes unrealistic expectations due to social media, Pinterest pictures that create pressure on cottage producers to make things in a way that doesn't reflect their resources and values. I, I tell people all the time I hate Pinterest because it gives an unrealistic expectation of things they should have because I'll get a picture of a six-tiered cake and they want this and we have a budget of $300. And, and I'm like, I can't even buy ingredients for a cake that size. And people get that attitude, well, somebody else had it, why can't I? And yes, somebody else had it, but somebody else also paid $1,000 for it. I think that has a lot to do with grocery store chains. You know, I can walk into Walmart and walk up to a counter and say, I want that cake and I want happy birthday, Ashley. And they say, okay, give me 30 minutes. If your expectation is an industrial machine that spits out pre-made cakes in five minutes, then that's one thing. But with cottage producers, the expectations gotta be realistic and consistent with the resources and time available. Aside from a factory, there's another level of distinction between a storefront bakery and a cottage producer. A bakery has a number of people, but producers like Ashley do it all. 
in bakeries, they have one person who does flowers and one person who does, you know, they're good at this and that person's good at that. I'm all those people just in one person. <laughs> you know, I don't have all of the skills. You, you're getting like 10 people when you order for me. I'm just slow, like 10 really old people. <laughs> I assured her that I would be a hundred times older or slower in the kitchen than she is. Also, this is not price matching. I'm guilty of going into Target, getting out my phone, and checking every other store and company for the lowest price. But with a cottage producer, that is not proper etiquette. I'll send an estimate and someone will say, well, so-and-so said they would do it for this. And I'm like, if you thought so-and-so could do it as well, you would have taken that immediately. Why would you even ask me? I can't price match. I don't know what they're using or what they're doing or, you know, I only know what I've decided my time is worth. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, my time is worth some, some money. We hear that all the time. Time is money. And it's true. And we should spend our time uplifting cottage producers instead of undercutting and pinning them against each other like this commercialized world has taught us to do. Now, the last myth I want to debunk is that cottage producers are the little guys and they all want to expand. They all want to get bigger and one day have their own store, bakery, whatever. Well, that's not true. That flexibility that pushed cottage producers through this pandemic and caused them to thrive and grow is connected to staying small. That business model in which you have time, flexibility, no overhead is perfectly respectable. The small home kitchen is a great option. If you've ever worked in a restaurant as an individual, you know that some restaurants are more terrifying than someone's home kitchen, you know? So this idea that people think that cottage bakers are like flying under the radar and we are where we are because you can be successful. At first, I struggled to understand why a cottage producer wouldn't want to expand to a commercial kitchen. But Sarah Humphreys explains to me just how much is required to manage a commercial space. You have to have the triple basin sink. I mean, there's a lot of invest investment because you have to have the stainless steel table. You have to have the inspections come in. You can't use that kitchen for anything other than just baking that product. Next time I meet a cottage producer, I'm not going to ask them this dreaded question that I did in the beginning. So don't you want to have your own bakery or store one day? Now I know that my intention was pure, but I wasn't aware of how respectable and valid an option maintaining a home cottage business can be. We've reached the last part of the podcast, part seven, how you can get started in the cottage business or how customers like you and I can respectfully and kindly support the cottage industry. 
I'd like to begin with the fact that no one is born a chef. If scrambled eggs or sandwiches are the limits of your culinary knowledge, know that that is okay and you could be a successful cottage producer one day. It's not intimidating. It's, you know, people say, I can't cook. Oh, yes, you can. You just need practice. Trial and error, you will get better at it. The less tangible or direct thing is you also have to be an accountant because you do have to pay taxes on the profits you make. There's tip number one. John Slemmer started with some encouragement and ended with the fact that you do have to keep track of finances and pricing, which can be a challenge for cottage producers who don't know the standard cost of their special product in the area they're in. A lot of people told me they looked around them at other small businesses and stores that sell similar products, and that's how they learned how to appropriately price their item. There are pricing guides and help is available so don't be afraid to reach out. Also, West Virginia is killing the game because we have an abundance of training options to help cottage producers understand food safety, finances, and more. Let me just say, trainings in West Virginia in general, there's so many resources. I, I think that's one of the greatest things that came out of the pandemic is online resources that are so much more open. There is a webinar on everything now. We do have our statewide food handlers card, even though it's not required. Every cottage food baker I have ever spoken to, I highly suggest it. There is no reason to not go out there and get some basic food safety training. And it can scale up and we have lots of different levels of it. One example, there's Better Process Control School, which is actually being offered, I think, pretty soon in here in West Virginia. And it's also offered online. If you're a veteran, and you're a member of our Veteran to Heroes program, which also includes first responders, policemen. We offer reimbursement for classes like that. Self-education is never a bad idea, and neither is avoiding misinformation. Go to the West Virginia Department of Agriculture and ask people like Casey Ganser for help. If you Google cottage foods, I unfortunately see a lot of misinformation out there. There must have been a hobby for a couple years ago of making a website explaining cottage food laws because, my goodness, have a lot of people made independent websites. I highly encourage anyone, no matter what state you're living in, start with your Department of Agriculture's and your health department. Because just yesterday, we have a young farmer Facebook page, and someone asked a question about cottage foods, and someone said, oh, here's a link. Seemed pretty official. Nothing in there was correct about what West Virginia cottage food laws. I think it was about a decade old. Don't be afraid to talk to your commissioner of agriculture, your representative for the health department, whoever that may be. They're here to help your business as much as you are. Like that's My sole job is to help producers. That's my only job. If you're a farmer, I'll help you do a production plan. If you're a cottage food baker, I'll help you work on your label. Like We are employed to help you. I'll be honest with everyone, at the beginning of this podcast, I had no intention of becoming a cottage producer myself. I thought it would be way over my head and too complicated. But after realizing how much assistance there is and how people would want me to succeed, I'm imagining a side hustle selling my chia flaxseed banana bread or whatever else I can come up with. It's empowering people that never thought in a million years they could start a business. 
I think in West Virginia, we get this mindset of kind of being stuck and not having a lot of opportunities. If I said to the average person, do you think you would ever be able to start your own business? I think most people would say no. I might be an oddball. I used to own a salon. I started lots of businesses. I don't see any fear in that, but most people do. Or the flip side is they all they see is dollar signs. If I start a business, it's going to cost me a fortune. Really, you're going to register your business license for about $35. You're going to buy some labels. You're going to buy some startup product, products, and you can start your business right there, then and there. You know, you can hand make your label if that's what you need to do. And I think that opens it up to a whole different group of people. And you know what? We all have a kitchen in our house. And we should remember exactly who the cottage food law is empowering. The Institute for Justice, the same nonprofit that helped advocate for the cottage food law to pass in West Virginia in 2017, completed a survey. They found that 83% of cottage producers were women, and over half of them lived in rural areas. Also, the median household income was about $36,000, which is lower than the national median. The way I see it, marginalized people who didn't always have the chance to generate an income and support a family now have an opportunity to be their own boss and have a job that is flexible for a variety of livelihoods. The cottage food law is formalizing and recognizing informal work that went unnoticed for too long. For example, a person with a disability who has trouble leaving their home can now create their own product and be their own boss with the hope of generating an income with minimal expenses as a cottage food producer. As a shopper, picking up a cottage good is a symbolic and noble act. You're helping people turn necessity into opportunity. At the time, I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, oh, I'm making jam because I don't have enough peas to sell. Like, I saw it as a necessity, and I think, oh, wow, so many people don't realize that there might be an opportunity right there that's just like one step further than what they're doing. As of now, a great way to find cottage producers is social media. I found them on Facebook and Instagram. I typed in homemade cakes in Charleston or Wheeling or wherever you're located. However, more and more traditional stores are hopping on the cottage food bandwagon as it gains popularity. Keep an eye out at your local coffee shop or farmer's market for cottage food items. The Public Market in Wheeling is a year-round nonprofit grocery store that's highlighting local producers like Brandon Wallace, who I interviewed. They've actually come to me about pepperoni rolls. They're thinking about buying some of mine and selling them out of the public market, and that'd be be really nice. They're really supportive. I'm incredibly pumped to say that if you check Brandon's Instagram now, you'll see his pep rolls or pepperoni rolls being sold at the public market for all to buy. Watercolor cookies, do-it-yourself pasta sauce, homemade granola, cheesy pepperoni rolls, custom vegan cakes. There is so much deliciousness to gain from the cottage food industry. Whether you're the producer or the consumer, everyone benefits when the local community is supported. Before we go, let's get back to the basics and remember what cottage food is all about. The closer you get to the original thing, the healthier and safer and better it's going to be for you. 
And that's what cottage food is all about, really. It's getting back to the basics and producing something that's simple, healthy, and fresh. At the same time, you're supporting your next-door neighbor, community members, and perhaps yourself one day. You're taking part in a healing opportunity that is allowing West Virginians to thrive in a difficult time and making the world a more delicious, happier place to live. We're showing that we care about the little guys. And when we see cottage food, we're now aware of the fact that we can't price check them like Amazon Corporation. And we can't expect them to produce a 10 tier Pinterest level cake because we know about the available resources and limitations of a home kitchen. I understand that I'm paying a cottage producer to step away from their family and dedicate their specialized skill to me and my interest to create a memorable product. I 100% agree that it's hard to find what's real when it feels like we're swimming in a sea of advertisements, social media posts, and misleading information in general. If anything, I hope that this podcast is chipping away at the stereotypes that are holding back cottage producers and exposing you to the avenues to find the most up-to-date and correct information. I'll end this with the story we started with. If you don't remember, it's about Ashley, a cottage baker, who was asked to make a cake for a family member's wedding. Instead of enjoying the wedding festivities, Ashley spent the entire time in the church kitchen making sure that the cake was absolutely perfect. She followed the same standard that she'd dedicate to any other order. And this standard and level of work is something that the family didn't understand when they asked her to prepare the cake. I've been there for five days at this point. Nobody sees me because I'm at the church in the kitchen working. And the day before the wedding, my aunt came in and was like, I just want to say, I'm sorry. And I was like, what? And she was, she said, I legitimately had no idea that it was this much work. She said, if I had known, I would have never asked for free. And I was like, listen, I get it. People don't, they just don't, they don't know. But now you know. You know how challenging it is to be a cottage producer, how much fun it is, how many relationships are formed, what are the myths, what you and I can do to support this industry that is literally built on homemade love and care. I leave you with the challenge to remember how dedicated, creative, hygienic, and professional cottage producers are, and to take a risk and seek one out Try their goods for yourself. And remember, this ain't no bake sale. Thank you from the bottom of my heart to everyone who dedicated their time and voice to the making of this podcast. Thank you to Casey and John for the in-depth background information. Thank you to all of these amazing producers, Eric and Brianna, Sarah, Ashley, Erica, Charles and Vicki, Brandon, Amy, and Cassandra. Without you, this story wouldn't be as magical and real as it came out to be. 
The work you do is making West Virginia a stronger place, and you're making it a more empathetic, wholesome, and delicious place to live. For more information about cottage food, check out the Community Kitchens Network, which I will link in the description below. Thank you to everyone who listened to this, and now go get yourself a yummy cottage treat to enjoy. Until next time.